great to see you guys. I feel like it's been a long time since I've looked at the faces of my dear Elgin folk, and so it's fantastic to see you guys. It's also be great to, um, yeah, great. It's also great to be joined by some of our other campuses. I uh, hope you guys are having a great morning. I think it's spring, but I've learned in Chicago not to bet on anything at this point. Um, you're going to need a Bible. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. We're going to go all the way through verse 38 today, studying this passage. This is the last sermon, at least for this first installment of our series in 1 Corinthians that we're calling Dirty Church. Um, we're, we're ending it in, a, um, in an interesting spot um, that you might, at the very beginning, think, well, that doesn't have a whole lot of application to me, but um, you're, I think you'll be surprised at how much it does. I um, had an interesting conversation on one occasion when I was a pastor in New Zealand. Um, this, this woman, who she was a single woman, and she was involved in uh, our church. She had come to our church in the last year, year and a half. Uh, she was um, a really well-connected, uh, fashionable woman, which was a little different from where we lived. We lived uh, kind of in the, I guess, the Rockford of New Zealand. <laughs> you know, like the down-to-earth sort of area that you wouldn't expect somebody who was as fashionable as this particular person was. She was in her 30s, um, close to 40, and, uh, and she'd been single her whole, her whole life. Um, Surprisingly to her, actually, my church uh, was going through a series about marriage and uh, other family dynamics, and, and of course, most church, we, all churches tend to do that these days. And so after one of the sermons, she, she came up to me and said, um, I want to tell you a story about something, one of the most impactful things that's ever happened to me in church. And this is just after a sermon that I'd preached, I think, on, on marriage. And she said, as you know, I've been single for all these years, and she said, I don't know how many sermons I've heard about marriage. She said, uh, about a week ago, though, I was at a, a Sunday night service in the town in which we lived at another church. It was an Anglican church, and there were only about 15 people in the room. And she said, the, the, the vicar, the, the pastor, he, he stood up, and before he said anything else, he said to all the, all, the, all the single people, he said, Everybody, everyone who's single in the room, can you please stand up? And she said, that's like the worst thing you should ever do. Like you scare the living daylights out of all the single people, right? <laughs> could all the single people stand up? And uh, so they did. There was like half the room were, were single people. And the pastor looked deeply at each one of them in this very awkward pause. And then he said these words. You're not broken. You're not broken. You're not broken. Just repeat them. She said, after about the fourth time, I don't know what happened to me, I just broke down in tears. And I looked around at all the other single people who were standing there, and they're all crying too. So she said, I just wanted to share that with you. And she went away. I was like, what? I remember going home and saying to my, my wife, why would those words matter so much to a single Christian? 
Why is it so impactful for a single Christian to be told they're not broken when they attend a church service? As we started talking about it, my wife and I became pretty clear. We'd been Christians for a, for a pretty long time. Um, and I got to tell you, I, singleness can be pretty denigrated in the church. Um, not intentionally. Nobody stands up and says, if you're single, you're not as good as everyone else. But we do some interesting things. Like uh, when, we, when we preach about uh, marriage, we take passages like Genesis 1 and we say, the two shall become one flesh. Right? Sorry, Genesis 2 uh, the two shall become one flesh. And we say then, as pastors, um, don't you see that marriage is this beautiful complementarity where the two fit together perfectly in this lovely union in a marriage relationship? And so they complete one another. We use language like that. They complete one another. It's like the Jerry Maguire sermon. They complete one another. And of course, single people in the room are thinking to themselves, so if I'm just half of that, am I complete? I mean, we don't mean it that way. We're trying to extol the virtues and excellencies of marriage, but in the process, we kind of talk about singleness like it's the kind of a thing you might, you might want to avoid. We have marriage groups. We have marriage conferences. We have marriage sermon series, and occasionally a church will put together a singles group, but usually the singles group is just an opportunity for them to get married. I mean, that, that's, that's kind of the way it works. When I, I was actually at, um, at my last church, and one these dear, lovely two, like 35 to 40-year-old women came up to me, and they were single, and they said, they, we decided to go to your singles group. And she, they said, um, I, we just wanted to let you know that when we walked into the room, it was honestly like fresh meat had been thrown into the, into the pool of sharks. And she said, like, every 60-year-old man was right on us. How are you doing, you know? Sure. You know? And they were like, I, I don't know if that's what you probably want for the singles group, but we're never, ever going back. Right? Well, yeah, it feels like a meat market sometimes because the goal is marriage. Don't you get that? Complete people are married. So our, our sad but common attitude towards signals, signals is though really out of step with Scripture. Uh, this might surprise you. I'm about to blow your mind. Jesus was single. You, you follow a single savior. Was he complete? Yeah, pretty darn complete. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, 25 to 30, this passage that we're going to look at, um, Paul's goal is to elevate the single life. If you don't hear another thing that I say, I want you to get this, Okay. His point is that singleness is not a burden to carry. It is an opportunity to exploit. Singleness, the Bible's teaching on singleness is that it is not a burden to carry. It is an opportunity to exploit. 
And so he makes that argument in this, in this great little passage. Uh, in it, though, I'm going to point out three facts about singleness and marriage that he tries to identify. Um, the first of those is this. Singleness means singular devotion. The beauty of singleness is that it is an opportunity for singular devotion to Christ. Let me explain to you what I mean. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 25. Uh, now concerning the betrothed, uh, this word now is the way Paul always kind of introduces a new subject. He's had this kind of dialogue going back and forth with the Corinthian church by letter. And also he has some friends, Chloe's, Chloe's household, come and visited him and said, hey, this is what's going on there. So this is the way he introduces kind of a new subject. He's saying, look, I know we've already talked about marriage and divorce a little bit, but I know you guys are having this particular challenge. So, so let me give you some instruction about your particular challenge. What is the challenge? Well, it's concerning the betrothed. That's not a word we use very often. Would you betrothed to me? We don't, we don't say that. Betrothal was um, a super engagement. Uh, we understand engagement. You know, you get down on one knee and you say, could you marry me? And she's, yes. You hope, yes. And then you, you wait for what? Two months, five months, a year, three years, whatever. You wait this period and you're, you're engaged in, in that period. Um, the decision that you make when, when you're getting engaged is your, de your decision, almost, almost always. You know, you fall in love and I, you know, I'm, I want to be engaged to this particular, marry this particular person. Your parents won't probably have a whole lot of say in that. They're just going to have to live with your decision. Man, that is so not the way it was in, in, the, in the ancient Near East in this time. Uh, parents made the decision for their kids about who's, who's going to get married. Uh, little, little Joni and little Joey uh, might be from very different families, and the parents are going to make an agreement that the two should get married. Now, the reason they're going to make this agreement is for probably family selfish reasons, like... Uh, hey, my family and my clan is at war with your clan, and we're looking for ways to keep the peace. So we thought that we would get my daughter married to your son because nothing says peace like a forced marriage. <laughs> so, but we're going to put you together because we think that that's probably going to make an alliance of some variety, okay? Um, you might have standing in your community, and, and I might have standing in my community we want to increase our standing in the community so my daughter will marry your son and we will be like super standing in our community. You have property, we have property, let's put the property together and we'll have more property than anyone else and we'll be able to corner the market. These were the reasons that people got married. And, and, the, and the betrothal was when your parents made a deal with each other, they'd exchange gifts and it would be kind of a legal contract with each other. To break it, to break a betrothal was a huge deal. It would bring shame upon your family. It would sometimes require some financial considerations. It was not something you wanted to do. Uh, Mary was betrothed to Joseph. And so when she gets pregnant, it's not just, oh, bummer. It's, oh my gosh, your whole family. You've, this arrangement has been made and your whole family is going to be shamed because of your wickedness. It's a scandal. 
So, now concerning the betrothed. What's going on is you've got some people in the Corinthian church who've come to faith in Christ in the state of betrothal. So Joey comes to faith in Jesus, and Joni comes to faith in Jesus, or maybe she doesn't, and now Joey is trying to figure out, okay, should I go through with the marriage? Should I not go through with the marriage? How should my faith in Christ influence my commitment to be married to this particular person? Should I get out of it? <laughs> For you guys on video, like this little kid who said, yeah. <laughs> it's okay, his dad put him up to it. Anyway, um, now concerning, oh, I love church. Now, now concerning the betrothed, I have, I have no command from the Lord. This is not basically saying, look, I don't know. <laughs> Who knows? Maybe when you see Jesus, you can ask him. No, I have no command from the Lord. This is basically saying that, look, um, if you go and listen to the words of Jesus, he doesn't actually address the subject. So Paul's like, I get it. Jesus didn't actually approach this particular subject, but I will. You know, I'm, I'm gonna give my judgment as, as one who, by the Lord's mercy, I'm, I think I'm trustworthy. I'm an apostle, so let me weigh in on this subject. I think that in view of the present distress, just remember that, in view of the present distress, it's good for a person to remain as he is. So however you came to faith in Christ, just remain there. If you're not, if you're not married, don't be married. If you are married, be married. That's what he says next, right? Are you bound to a wife? Don't seek to be free. Are you free from a wife? Don't seek a wife. But if you do marry, look, you, ha you haven't sinned. Like you can do what, what you want. And if a betrothed woman, she marries, she's not sinned. Yet those who marry, okay, I just want to warn you, he says that those who marry will have worldly troubles. Amen. No? Okay. Met those who have married will have worldly troubles. And look, I want to spare you of the worldly troubles. You, you, you saw those those lines, right? Because of the present distress and because of the worldly troubles, I want to spare you from them. Now, listen, when I read that initially, I'm like, that's really interesting. Kind of sounds like Paul saying, man, uh, marriage is trouble. <laughs> like, if you've been married, you know that it is trouble. So uh, you should stay away from it at all costs. That's what it sounds like, which of course leads me to think about all the great married jokes I've heard, so here's a couple. Um, there's this woman, and she was, you know, you take the shopping cart through the mall or through the grocery store, and it's always got that one. You always get the one with the shaky wheel. And every, you go through every aisle and go, and you're like, I, I, did, I don't know what happened, you know? Finally, you get to the front, you go out, and you're like, I'm so sick of this cart. You go take it to your car. You take your groceries out. Well, this other woman came along at this particular time, and, you know, she's going to be kind and take the cart with her, and the first woman says, you can take the cart, but I just, I just need you to know that it makes awful noises, but it works. And the other woman grabbed it and said, oh, don't worry, I have a husband at home like that. She starts. <laughs> okay, another one. Now, um, there's a burial service was had for an elderly woman, and it finished with a massive clap of thunder. It was followed then by a bolt of lightning and then even more thunder. 
Well, said her husband to the shaken pastor standing next to him, she's there. I mean, that was a pretty good one. I like that one a lot, right? That's the way we think. I mean, our culture sometimes thinks about marriage, right? We hear it in the news media and the TV and all the other stuff. Like, marriage is really hard and it's horrible. And, you know, you'll, we say things like, they, they're like an old married couple because they bicker all the time and things like this. And so when we originally read this, we're like, yeah, that must be the worldly troubles Paul's talking about. And the answer is no, it's not. Not, not at all. He's not trying to denigrate marriage in any, in any way here. What he's trying to say is that if you get married, you will have a particular focus on the issues of this world in a way that single people don't. You, you, you will have to focus on stuff like diapers and stuff like uh, I can't just go to that location and not tell anybody that I'm there. I have to check in. I'm not as free to like hear that there's need in the Ukraine for people to pass out food and just jump on a plane and go because I'm thinking to myself, well, can, can I? I mean, I got a wife, I got three kids. If I go, it's a, I, I don't know. But a single person, they can jump on the plane right away. They're free from worldly troubles. And in, in, in the moment of this present distress, he means the difficulty of this world right now, wouldn't it be great if you had the freedom to serve Christ with all that you've got without any hesitation to do whatever it is that is needed at that present moment. So when you go, I'm gonna skip forward then to verse 32. He makes this argument. Um, look, I want you to be free from anxieties and this word actually it probably better translated concerns. Like I, I, look, I want you to be free from concerns. The unmarried man, the single guy, he, he's concerned or anxious about the things of the Lord. Anxious not in a bad way, right? But concerned about the things of the Lord. I hope we're all concerned about the things of the Lord. The unmarried man, that's, that's his focus, how to please the Lord. But the married man, he, he's concerned about what? about worldly things. Not that the worldly things are bad, but they're just stuff that has to do with this world. Diapers and, and, and cleaning up after himself in the bathroom because he shares it with some, like, single guys don't have to do that. Amen, single guys who go to your house, you know that. I've used your bathrooms. <laughs> How to please his wife, that's, that's a married man. And his interests, look, guys, his interests are divided. And the unmarried or, or betrothed woman, it's not just for men, it, 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 the unmarried or betrothed woman, she, she's concerned or anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in, in body and spirit. She can focus on her own relationship with God. But the married woman, she's anxious about, again, worldly things, how to please her husband. Look, I, I say this for your, guys, that's a y'all. I say this for y'all's own benefit. It's a plural. Wait a minute, why, why, do we, why are we using y'all there? Why is it a plural? Because she's saying, look, I'm saying all this stuff for the church's benefit. 
Corinthians, I need you to know that the single people in your midst are there for y'all's benefit. Not to lay any restraint upon y'all, but to promote good, good, praise God, good. There it is. Order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. You see his argument. It's basically, look, when you're single, you have all your attention focused on, on Jesus. Singleness means singular devotion to God. And a single person can benefit the church more than a married person can simply because he or she doesn't have divided attention. Um, we could learn all that we need to know about this from the movies, to be honest with you. You guys know Jason Bourne? Uh, I mean, I do personally, he's my buddy. But Jason Bourne uh, goes around and he is, he's a hitman or whatever. He is given missions and he, he goes on those missions and he's able to accomplish them. Um, and part of Jason Bourne's deal is that the bad guys can't get at Jason Bourne because Jason Bourne doesn't have anybody he's friends with or ties to that they can hold over his head. The bad guys are always looking for that, right? They're always like, well, does he have a wife? Let's hold her hostage. Does he have children? Let's hold them hostage. Jason Bourne doesn't have any, any of that. Ethan Hunt, Mission Impossible, doesn't have any of that. Why? Because they need to be singularly focused on the task at hand in order to be a great success at it. Right. We can learn all things from Jason Bourne. Yeah, that's, that's the point he's making, is that, look, when you don't have the entanglements, you're freed up to serve Christ in, quite honestly, a pretty radical way. A really radical way. So in other words, singleness is not, listen, it's not a burden to be carried. It's an opportunity to exploit. One of my favorite um, people in the history of the Christian church, all of us have people that when we go to heaven, we're gonna be like, where, where, where is that person? I wanna meet them, shake their hand. Helen Rosevere is the name of one of those people for me. If you want to read an amazing book, Go pick up Helen Rosevere's Living Faith. It'll change your life. Helen Rosevere was a medical missionary to the Belgian Congo in the 20th century. She just passed away recently, I think. Um, she went out as a single missionary. She always expected that she would get married, but she went through the medical training, and she was, she was a tough lady. She went out to the Congo eventually and ended up establishing a, basically a hospital and an orphanage and a little church attached to it. Like all of that stuff was done by this single, this single lady who's just, she's just tough as nuts, man. She um, always thought that there was gonna be some man who was gonna come along and eventually get married to her. She said at one point though, I didn't really want it for a man for romance. I just needed a man to open the pickle jar. Like that was her thing. I just need a guy who can reach the stuff on the top shelf because I'm short and I can't reach it. And because people would take me more seriously if I had a husband, because they didn't always take her seriously. They'd sometimes push her into the background and things like that. Helen Rosevere had an enormous impact. There were soldiers who'd overrun this village. The, there was a civil war happening in Congo, and this woman would stuck around while the soldiers overran the village and did unspeakable things to the women, including her. They would overrun this village, but she stuck around so she could care for the rest of the folks there. Not just once, she did this twice, and the unspeakable things happened again. So committed to the Lord. Eventually, she ended up coming back to Great Britain, 
And she was so well-loved that she kind of went on the writing and speaking tour and people would invite her to their college or whatever and she'd go to these Bible colleges and they'd always like, she'd give a general address to all the students and then they'd break off all the women so she could address the women. And many of the women, she said, would approach her and say, I, 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 I want to be married. I want to, like, how did you deal with the fact that you were single out there on, on the field? Didn't you feel incomplete? Because, you know, they live in the same Christian subculture that we live in. Everyone's pushing us to get married. <laughs> she would respond, um, do you want to be like Jesus? She has this lovely way of saying Jesus. Do you want to be like Jesus? Was he satisfied and complete? And the ladies would all say, of course he was. Well, he was single. Look, singleness, she said, is never a second best. It's never, oh, he'll make it up to you. If he gives you the privilege of calling you to be single, it really is a wonderful privilege. I, I can go back to when soldiers would come up in the middle of the night and knock on my door, and I never had anyone else but myself to protect. If I had to go into a home and see someone sick in there, I would just go in. But I've seen married women who, who wouldn't do that. They'd, they'd look around first and ask, does this patient have leprosy? See, they didn't want to infect their children when they went home. But I never had to think like that. I, I was just free to do it. Oh, singles brothers and sisters, just hear me. You are free to do it. There's so much focus on the perceived burden that you have as a single person. And I know all your married friends are always talking to you about, hey, do you have any people in your life who are looking to get married? Your response would say, man, I don't know, but I'm going to follow Jesus and serve him with everything I've got. You might, you might be single for a season. Look at this season as an opportunity to edify the church in ways that nobody else can. Maybe it's a long season for the rest of your days, but this is a season, an opportunity that you need to exploit. Singleness means singular devotion, right? Second. Three facts about singleness and marriage. Um, time is running short. Now, Paul is going to try to say, in between this path, I just went through one little section and then I skipped a section and I went to the next one. I want to go back to that middle one. Because in the middle one, he tries to explain the theology and the perspective that everyone should have. Regardless of whether you're married or you're single, here's the attitude you should have toward your life between now and the time Christ returns. So, verse 29. This is what I mean, brothers. The appointed time has grown very short. What appointed time? The, the appointed time for Christ. Like God has appointed a time when Christ will return and he will make all things new. We, we live today and tomorrow will be one day closer to the return of Christ. So the time every day is growing Shorter. It's getting closer. The appointed time has grown very short. So, so what should you do in light of the shortness of the days? In, in light of the coming moment? Man, one of the greatest, 
One of the, well, one great, one of the worst tests I've ever taken in my entire life was in a calculus class from the University of Washington when I was our freshman in college, okay? Here's why it was really hard. Um, I went into this university class, first thing is calculus, right? Smart math guy, cool, gonna go into calculus and I'm gonna make, you know, I'm gonna kill this thing. I had a professor who was about, I, he was really quite old. He had a, 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 a button around his, his neck and he said to us, the very first thing he said to us is, look, if I fall over, you come and push the button. Oh, okay. Anyway, he, he big stadium, um, big stadium room. And he would always ask questions. Does anybody have any questions? And he'd look to the first two rows. And half the room would be like, I have a calculus question. And he'd be like, well, let's move on. <laughs> he'd do this. Now he's left-handed. And he would write, we had overhead projectors, the kinds that you could roll forward. Some of you guys remember these days. Anyway, he would write on the overhead projector and he was a left-handed guy. So he would write and then he'd cover it up with his arm. And he had some sort of OCD thing. So he would roll it forward as soon as he wrote it. So he'd write it. No one knew what it said. Do you have any questions? Half the room, yes? All right, let's move on. And he'd roll it forward. First day, I was like, this isn't, this isn't gonna work. Now, a smart person at this point drops this class, right? <laughs> smart person, I am not. So I'm like, yeah, no big deal. You know what, it's just calculus. How hard could it be? So I had a friend who asked me, hey, do you wanna be part of our flag football team? And I was like, yeah. Um, when, does, when are the games? And he told me it was the exact same time as my calculus class. And I was like, flag football, calculus, flag, flag football. So I went and I played flag football. I went to calculus class like three times the entire term. Now, at the end of the term, uh, it, it occurred to me that the time was running very short and that the test was right around the corner. And so I ended up sitting down about two days before the test. I figured that's sufficient time to learn the entire class of calculus. And I sat down and I looked, opened the book and I <laughs> opened the book and I started to study my calculus. And I went to some friends to try to say, hey, okay, so just let me speak out loud. I'm a verbal processor, speak out loud, tell you what I'm, what I'm looking at. So I explain it to them and they say, yeah, yeah. I said, oh, good. He said, yeah, but that's, that, we talked about that on the second day. Like that, that was a long time and that's nothing compared to all the other stuff. So I was like, oh, okay. So I go through the book and I two straight days through the book, got it. Show up to the test. They give you the test, right? You sit down in your little, your little chair, you're far enough away so you can't do the calculus cheating. And so I'm given this little book. It's only like four pages. Every, there's a question on the front and the back, front and back, front and back. And I, I look at the first one, um, no. And then the second one, I have no idea. And the third one, nope. I finally got to the last one and it was something about a train. I remember it being about a train. You know how I know it was about a train? Because I spent the next two hours of my life drawing that train on the back. That was my test, I drew a train. I ended up turning it in about 30 minutes before the test was over. I was the first one done because even though I'm gonna fail this, I'm gonna make it look like I'm not, right? So I walked forward and they smiled at everyone and they're like, wow, he's done, so smart. And I handed it in to the guy who's the proctor and he looked at me and he looked at the test, saw the train and he was like, uh-oh. And I failed. It was a terrible, terrible moment. But I think about that quite a lot when I think about the impending moment of judgment, the, the return of Christ, and what happens when the time starts growing short is that you focus more, you focus more 
on what matters when the time runs short. And this is Paul's point here. Look, the pointed time has grown very short. So from now on, and he gives five statements, five examples of what it looks like and should look like to live in different areas in light of the impending moment of Christ's return. From now on, number one, let those who have wives live as though they had none. Now he's just spent this time talking about how marriage is fine, right? And so he's, he's not literally saying, you know what? Act like she's not even around. Just you, you, do what you're, you do what you're doing. He's saying though that look, in the time that's running very short, your focus, even though you're married and you're gonna live out your life in that marriage, your focus should be on Christ, what Christ wants. You don't have time to waste. What Jesus wants of you in this moment is more important now than it was earlier because it's closer to the end. He's coming. Live like it. So uh, I know that we in our culture, we have you know, romantic comedies that um, basically have the same uh, point in all of them, that if you find your one true love, you will be so happy, you, like you, it'll be eternal, the love and bliss that you will have. Right? Uh, we, we use phrases like, and they lived happily ever after. Right? The end of a, one of the, my favorite rom-coms was um, Notting Hill. Some of you guys remember that. At the end of Notting Hill, they, they, they're laying there. Uh, he, he's, he's sitting on a park bench. The leaves are all blooming, the flowers, the smells. It's like idyllic. It's like the Garden of Eden. And she's laying there holding his hand in some awkward way. And he's, she's pregnant. It's like, oh my gosh, everything came right. So this couple that had all these difficulties has now found their great joy in each other. And guys, that's the way that our culture talks about love. That's the way they talk about marriage. But what Paul's saying here is, man, don't find your joy in your spouse. The marriage that you have with your spouse, even the greatest joy that you have with your spouse in the present moment is just a pointer. It's just a signal to the great marriage that you will have in heaven. See, you're not gonna be married in heaven, not to her and not to him. Jesus will be your spouse. So focus now on the fact that that is coming. Yes, love your spouse. Yes, invest in your marriage, but only with a view towards serving Christ more. Um, here's another example. He says that those who have wives live as though they had none. And, and, and those, second, who mourn as though they were not mourning. Um, I met this guy. We've been doing these town hall meetings. I met this guy just this last week. And uh, he was telling me that his wife had died in February, or sorry, in December and and. I said, of course, you meet somebody like that, and you're like, oh, my goodness, that's just terrible. I'm so sorry that that's happened to you. And his response to me was, um, you know, she was, kind of, she was sick for a, quite a while. So when I think about it, I do get very sad. Like, I really do mourn. I have a lot of grief. But it's not for her. Like, sometimes I just picture where she is and what she's experiencing right now. I grieve for me but I am so joyful for, for her. 
And it gives me a hope that I know one day I'm gonna see her again and not just her, but our savior together. Dude, I, I stood there and I was like, now that's a Christian. That's a Christian. Yeah, we mourn, we, we grieve, we have the difficulties, but we don't grieve without hope because we know that Christ is returning and to live in light of the return of Christ is to frame your mourning and your grief in such a way that it is not crushing you because you know one day it will be over. And that day is coming shorter and shorter and shorter and shorter every single day that you live between now and then. There's a third one. Uh, and, and those, third, who rejoice as though they were not rejoicing. So just like your morning, look, I get it. We, we love to celebrate the big moments in our life. You win the big game. Uh, you get the big raise. You do all these things. You go out to dinner. Woo, this is the best. But you know as a Christian that no matter what great thing you're experiencing right now, it pales in comparison to the joy you will have then. It is just a foretaste, a very mild foretaste of the enormous joy that you will have then. And so when you think about your present joys, you're like, I love this. But it's only a foretaste of what will, what will be. You guys ever gone into the, the ice cream store and you get the samples? Whenever I go to the samples, I always want to go in and see how many they'll give me before they stop, you know? Like, would you like a sample? We give samples. I'll have all of them, you know, just one by one. Now, I love coconut, uh, chocolate, uh, almond stuff. Okay? I'm 50th birthday on July 5th, just so you know. When I go in and I do the taste of that, I'm like, okay, well, that's, that's obviously the one. I basically rejoice in the tastes that are going on in my mouth. It's magnificent. But listen, it's just a taste. The real joy comes when they put the scoop in there and I'm like, really, you don't wanna give a little bit more? And they put a little bit more and I got my massive waffle cone and I'm walking around like Joe Biden, you know, licking that stuff, you know, loving it, loving it. Right, the, the joy is in the whole cone. It's not in just this little taste. And yet you and I are so focused on the little taste. The joy is then. So we rejoice, yes, we rejoice, but not as people who are rejoicing because we will rejoice in that day. In that day, fourth one, and those who buy as though they had no goods. I don't love this translation. This phrase, had no goods. The actual translation should be as, as those who buy as though they do not um, possess. And, and this word possess, it, in Greek, it kind of means to cling to, right? You, you know what it's like to possess your stuff, Right? Hey, can I borrow your thing? No. Well, maybe, but if you're gonna borrow it, can you sign these four documents to make sure that you promise not to actually spill a single crumb in that room? That ice cream, do not bring it in my car, right? That cling to possess. So in other words, he's saying, look, we, we're Christians, we're people who buy. Yes, we buy stuff in the world today, but we don't possess it. We don't cling to it. See, Christians view the stuff as just the stuff. It's the stuff of this life. Your car is stuff of this life. Your, your, your house is stuff of this life. That's all it is. It's there, in fact, to share because the day is coming where it will all be done away with. And the joy you will have in that day will surpass anything, any joy you find in your TV. Give me a break, in your TV. So don't possess, don't hold on. 
Live in light of that day. And finally, he finishes it with like the biggest kind of summary that he can. And those, uh, fifth, those who deal with the world as though they had no dealings with it. It's an interesting phrase. He's, what, he, what he's essentially saying here is that the rules of the world that you currently inhabit do not imply. I get it. The whole society is trying to force you into thinking about life in the present moment in a hedonistic way. But Paul's saying, no, no, there's a joy that transcends what you're experiencing now. Live in light of that joy. You, you guys do know that the sec- secular culture, right, the godless culture outside the doors, if you ask somebody what happens after you die, the person is going to say to you, well, after you die, you just cease to be. Now, in light of that, what should you do? In light of the truth, they say, that we will just cease to exist, what should you do? Well, carpe diem, seize the day. You should live every single moment as if it's your last. Do you know what helps you to live every single moment as if it's your last? Money. So your whole life should be wrapped around the idea of getting money so that you can give yourself the kind of temporary momentary whooshes that make life have meaning because there really isn't any meaning in it. There's just this hedonistic pleasure. So in light of the end, you should live to pleasure yourself as much as you can today. And guys, that makes sense. If that's, if that's the end, then that makes sense. But listen, a Christian comes along, Paul comes along, is like, don't think that way. Don't think that way. The way that you ought to be thinking is that this life does not end there. This is just a precursor to the, to the next life, and Jesus will return, and he'll make all things, all things new. So the shortened time should make you focus more on the things of Jesus, not focus on just you, but focus on the things of Jesus, whose opinion is the only one that matters. Because we know time is short for Christ to return, we must live in light of it. Or maybe to give you a picture, you know, when you first have a baby, when you first had a baby, it changed everything that we looked at. You know, single people have white carpets. Right? They do. They have clean cars and white carpets and their clothes are all sorted out. They have all sorts of choking hazards on the floor constantly. But the moment, the moment you find, oh, we're going to be pregnant. We're going to be pregnant. Well, uh, you immediately go out and you buy this crib and construct it and put it in there even eight months ahead of time. And then you put these little things hanging from the ceiling. You decorate the whole room. You paint stuff. You go around and pick up all the things, every single moment of the day, there is something on your mind about that moment. And the closer it gets, the more intense this focus gets, right? The birth is just around the corner, brothers and sisters. It's just around the corner. It's very near. Are you suffering and troubled? It's a light and momentary affliction. Not worthy to be compared to the, to the, to the glory that will be revealed. Are you having great moments? It's, it's nothing compared to that day. Your marriage it points to that day. Live in light of that day. Live in light of that day. Time is running short. Last one, very quickly. Uh, successful singleness has its conditions. Um, this passage ends in a 
kind of interesting spot. If anyone thinks that he is not behaving properly toward his betrothed, does anybody want to think what that means, behaving properly? There's a sexual connotation here. In other words, if there's a guy or if, if, if you're a man or a woman and you're burning with passion, you should, you should realize that maybe you should be getting married. This is exactly what Paul has said earlier. Now as a concession, he says, not a command, I say this. I wish that all were as I myself am, but each has his own gift from God, and marriage or singleness is a gift, one of one kind and, and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am, but if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry for, look, it's better to marry than to burn with passion. This, this, is, this is his point. He's basically trying to say, look, uh, if you're not behaving properly toward your betrothed, if you're, if you're really having a hard time keeping your hands off her or her hands off him, you should seriously consider marriage. Singleness is not for you. Can I pause for just a second? Um, I wanna pause and point, point this out. Um, if you're struggling sexually in your unmarried relationship, you have two options. Uh, either to marry or break up. So listen to me, if, you, if you're in an unmarried relationship and you're struggling to keep your hands off of each other, there's two Christian options. One is to marry, the other one is to break off. The Christian option of, hey, we're just gonna keep doing it and see what happens, that's not a Christian option. If you choose to marry, okay, we'll get married. There is a condition that is in this passage that the very end of the passage, the condition for marriage in it for a Christian is that it's in the Lord. Uh, a wife is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she is free to be married to whom she wishes, only in the Lord. Look, I get it. You're dating some unbeliever. You're like, oh, but I'm gonna win him to Jesus in the fourth year of marriage. That might happen. I've seen it happen. You know what percentage of the time it happens compared to the percentage of the time that the person who gets married and has that intention actually loses their faith? I don't know, maybe 4%. So if, you, if you're struggling sexually, break up or get married, but only in the Lord. But only in the Lord, right? Okay, so we're gonna finish this passage then after that. At the end. Whoever is firmly established in his heart. So if you want to be single, here's what it's going to require. You have to be firmly established in your heart, being under no necessity, but having your desire or your will under control. Nobody can compel you. You've decided that you're going to be firmly established. You're going to dig your heels in like a tug of war, and you're going to say, I believe that God has called me to singleness. I actually don't feel like somebody's opinions are going to influence me. I have my will under control, and I've determined this in my heart. I'm gonna keep my betrothed my betrothed, meaning I'm not gonna marry her. If that's you, then you're gonna do well, he says. So then he who marries his betrothed does well, and he who refrains from marriage will do even better. You're not broken. You're not broken. Look, let me finish with just this. Uh, I do these... I do these indoor cycling thing. I have a TV in front of me when I'm riding my, my little indoor cycle and I get to follow people around Hawaii. 
It's delightful on winter days in Chicago, right? And I follow this person around Hawaii. I do what they call interval training. Interval training is really interesting. You go like five different intervals, but the last interval is always the same. The last interval, the person who is leading you through there is, I know you're tired. You have one minute left. You leave everything on the, on the I guess the field. <laughs> they, Come on. What, you are gonna stand on top of this mountain and you're gonna love the view and it's gonna be magnificent, but you gotta keep pressing. You've gotta keep pressing. The time is short, he says. And then I was doing this yesterday. I was thinking to myself, that's this sermon. That's what he's saying. The time is short. The time is short. Keep going. Keep going. Live on, live on purpose. And if you're single, you're not, you're not broken. It's not a burden to carry, but an opportunity to exploit. So exploit it. Right, I liked First Corinthians. Let's give it a break though, so that we don't get punched anymore and we'll come back next year and get punched some more. Let me pray. Father, I'm thankful for your goodness and I'm thankful for your grace and for this lovely opportunity we've had to study First Corinthians together. And I pray, Lord, that you would do your work through it. Uh, ultimately, Lord, the, the, the focus on the nearness of the return of Christ, Father, and how that should influence the way that we think and live, I pray, Father, that that would have an effect in the lives of all who hear me. And I pray, Father, that we as a church and that churches more widely would start to see the single people in their midst as, as people who are um, your people gifted to do remarkable things. And I pray, Father, you'd raise them up to do that very thing, that we would see a real movement of people who are called to singleness or who are acting in their, in their current singleness, Father, with everything they've got to serve you. We pray it in Jesus' good name. Amen.